How's everybody doing? Good. We had our life groups kick off uh, this past Friday, and um, we had, uh, in total, we had 53 people at all the different life groups. So that was a good kickoff. Very excited about the book that we're going through, and um, our family had a good time. I know many of you all did, too. All right. You know, we're about halfway through First Thessalonians, and I told you at the beginning of the study we'd take a week to examine a few things on how Paul ended up in Thessalonica and what the backdrop of church events um, was. So this is that week. Um, Acts gives us the history of the early church. And I think what happens many times is, is we isolate the book of Acts and what's actually going on um, from what, what, what the epistles are and where they're at. But it's really cool when you start to see the epistles of Paul fit into the timeline of Acts. We're going to hit the pause button um, because we're not used to sending our kids out because we haven't done that for a bit. So the kids are heading out uh, for, for catechism, and so they can head out right now. All right. So, <clears throat> um, so it's cool when you can see where those epistles fit in with the timeline of Acts. Um, we have the epistles, but I think sometimes um, what happens is, is we need to understand. I was talking to someone the other day about Genesis and um, the creation account, and I was emphasizing to them the importance of us trying to understand it in the context of which it was originally received. Because that's how we're, we're really supposed to receive the word. The letter to the Thessalonians was written to the Thessalonians, and if we want to understand it, we need to understand what it was like back then for them. Because that's who it was written to, specifically. We have to remember something. These are real letters to real churches with real people who had real problems. So we're in good company. <laughs> so we're going to look at the book of Acts and see where 1 Thessalonians fits in and how Paul ended up in Thessalonica. So turn to Acts. Oh, let's start in Acts 13. Paul has his Damascus um, experience, ends up getting saved. This is a, a few chapters later in Acts 13. It says in verse 2, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is what we would call Paul's first missionary journey. So he and Barnabas go um, to the city of, of Seleucia. That's where they set sail for Cyprus. Once they're in Cyprus, they go to a couple cities on the island of Cyprus, Salamis and Paphos. Then they leave that island. They go to Perga and Pamphylia. Then they go to Antioch and Pisidia, and then on to Iconium, then on to Lystra, then to, to Derbe, and then back to Antioch. That's his first journey. A lot of those cities don't sound very familiar. On his first journey, we don't have any um, 
much information of, of, of history, and we're going to find out why in just a little bit. It's, gonna, it's very important because we get some crazy, amazing, awesome stuff that God is doing in Acts, but on this first missionary journey, we just get a very short recap of it. Just a short recap. Once we get into his second missionary journey, that's where uh, the stories begin. So that's his first missionary journey. Then we have the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. So turn to Acts 15. In verse 1 it says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So this is commonly referred to as the Jerusalem Council, the elders, the pastors, and actually if you read, the whole church gathers to discuss this issue. They came up with a short little basically doctrinal statement that they were going to send to all the churches outside of Jerusalem. Paul gets commissioned for his second missionary journey to go take this letter. This is around roughly late summer, early fall, 49 AD. So they end up back in Antioch. After Jerusalem, they head back to Antioch. That's kind of their home base. Uh, That's where they started their first missionary journey. That's where they're going to end up on their second missionary journey. 49 AD. What happens between Paul and Barnabas? They have a falling out, unfortunately. Look what it says. Let's start in verse 33. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with them and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So Barnabas goes in one direction. Paul goes in a different direction. Paul's commission is to take that letter from the Jerusalem council and deliver it to the churches and give them the instruction. So Paul wants to take that. He wants to strengthen and encourage them at the same time and help them out um, and, and build them up. So they start their journey. And the first place they head out is, uh, as it says in Acts 14, uh, excuse me, 1541, Syria and Cilicia. What's their purpose? It's back in verse 36. Visit the brothers and see how they are. They want, they want to see how they're doing. They want to see what's going on. They want to encourage them. But what are they doing as they travel? They're letting the churches know of the decision. Jump down to chapter 16. 
verse 4. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. That was the result. That was really, their mission was to take the letter and do this, strengthen the, strengthen the, the churches. But <clears throat> what, what happens? That, that was their mission, but actually God had a different mission for them. That was part of the mission God had. They think their mission trip is over, but it's not. Look at verse 6. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So they've already visited all the churches that they've already planted. Okay, mission over. But then they're like, hey, let's look for some more opportunities. Let's keep preaching the word. But the door is closed in Western Asia. So then they're like, oh, okay, well, I guess we're not supposed to go there. Verse 7. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now, Asia and Bithynia, those aren't cities or towns. Those are large regions. So they're trying to go into a, a region, a large country area. They're not able to go there. So then what do they do? They go down to a city, uh, Troas. And look what it says in verse 9. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Paul's denied two times to go where he thinks he's supposed to go. Then they end up going to Macedonia, and they sail in this order. They go to Neapolis, Philippi, Amphipolis, Apollonia, Thessalonica, where we get Thessalonians, Berea, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, and then they end up back in Jerusalem. This whole trip takes about three years. Uh, much of it is spent in Corinth and Ephesus for uh, a couple years. Then we get, once we hit Acts 17, we get a fuller description of what occurs in each of these cities. I'll mention in a bit why that is. But I want us to think about the Thessalonian church and think about Paul's journey. And I want to make a few observations because I think we can relate well to this church. Remember what I said just a moment ago. These are real letters to real churches, to real people with real problems. Okay, so we can relate. And anytime Paul's writing a letter, most of the time I'd say there's four key things he's trying to accomplish. So if you're, if you're reading and you're having your quiet time, there's four things he's writing towards. Warning, encouraging, correcting, and instructing. Those four things. So you're, if you're reading through uh, any book of the Bible, but specifically these letters of Paul's or Peter's or John's, you can ask yourself, hey, what, what is the church being warned about? What is the church being encouraged about? What is the church being corrected on? And what is the church being instructed on? Most of the letters will have all four of those things. And actually, if you turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, I know we're not that far yet, but I'll just give you <clears throat> a peek of it just in one chapter. 
we can see this warn, encourage, correct, and instruct all within a few verses. Verse 1, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know the instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. And now he's going to instruct them. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Okay, there's the warning. Well, what's the warning? Um, the Lord is an avenger. Okay, just like a little warning there. If you're not walking with the Lord, he's an avenger. So there's your warning. But then I want you to notice the encouragement. He goes on, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Okay, so he's, he's encouraging them, like, hey, you're, you're loving, and he compliments them, even in, in Corinthians, he compliments them uh, of their love that they have, not just for themselves, not just for their own church, but for the other churches. So an encouragement. But then notice that the correction that, that occurs our theme has been to stay on mission. Stay on mission. And I actually think it's most appropriate, given uh, what's occurred, especially the last six months, we've, we've had to be intentional to stay on mission regarding what God has called us to do. And think about it for a moment. Every missionary journey of Paul, like he completed it. But it wasn't always like he imagined. It usually ended differently than he expected. But notice that he stayed on mission. When you look at his entire life, he stayed on mission. And Jesus came on a mission, right? Right? Okay. And I mean, how many times did people try to sidetrack Jesus from his mission? I mean, think about that. You know, the crowds towards the the end, the crowds are shouting, Hosanna. They're ready to make him king. But, I mean, that'd be off mission. Because that was not the mission of Jesus, to be crowned the king at that time. Even his disciples are totally off track at times, right? You know, Peter, <clears throat> look, look at Peter, uh, Matthew 16. I want you to see this about Peter. I'm, I'm sure you've noticed it before. But I want you to notice it again. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I mean, think about that, friends. Like, this is the middle of Matthew. It's not like it's like, oh, he just met uh, Jesus last week. 
Like, there's been some time that's gone on. He knows Jesus pretty well, and, and he, he's rebuking Jesus. And he's like, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. All right, and then we get, you know, the famous words from Jesus is, get behind me, Satan. So many people tried to get, even his own disciples tried to get him off track. Right? Satan tried to do it. I mean, you can, ha- you can have all this. I'll, I'll give you all this, right? Just stop from the path that, that you're on. And even Pilate, when you read, you can tell that, that Pilate's kind of torn what to do because he knows Jesus is innocent. <clears throat> and he's given almost like opportunities for tr- Jesus to try to get himself off the hook. You know, you know, like, if you just help me out a little bit here, I, I might be able to do something. No, Jesus stayed on mission. Even with all those temptations, even with all those opportunities, Jesus stayed on mission. Now, we need to, even though we're, we're wrapping up our, our 12 months of staying on mission, like, that's part of the Christian life, is that we stay on mission, to serve God, to serve others. So our theme for the next 12 months <clears throat> is going to be unity in community. Unity in community. Why unity in community? Because I think it's important, especially during this time. I think if I've learned, I've learned a number of things the last six months or so, but one of the things I've learned is the importance of community. And when many of us were home for quite an extended period of time, and we slowly started to come back out, some quicker than others, that's fine. But I hope you realized how much you need your brothers and sisters in Christ. How much you need to depend on them. Hopefully you do depend on them, but you need to depend on them to walk the Christian walk. And you know, it's easy to be in unity by yourself. But what about in community? I mean, it's, it can be tough work. And that's why people skip out on community. It's work. It's hard work. I mean, think about it. We just read, even the Apostle Paul and Barnabas had a, a disagreement sharp enough that they divided over it. And friends, everything being thrown us against us from the culture, the temptations that we face in our daily lives, the struggles that we go through personally with our families, with our children. We need to be a community of believers in unity with one another. United on the truths of scriptures. Now that doesn't mean we might not uh, debate certain points of lesser doctrine. You know, at our life group the other night, um, the, the men all sat around a table and exposed their wisdom on different political viewpoints. I can't believe all of them were wrong except me. (laughs) But we were not in full agreement on some of the lesser points. But guess what? We wrapped up that time and we went into our discussion of, of the word of God and we're in complete unity and agreement. So we can have uh, lesser points we can we can have we can even have some vigorous debate as some of those men in my life group are known and maybe prone to do. <laughs> but it, it's kind of like you know when I was at seminary it was the same thing. 
because even though I went to a, a seminary that was a denomination for the Presbyterian Church, um, all sorts of different denominations were represented there by the students. Everything from Pentecostals to Charismatics to Lutherans to Methodists, I mean, all sorts of different um, beliefs, okay, united on the essentials, and we'd get into some of those topics quite in depth, and we'd be able to debate it and get even passionate about it, but as the class ended, we could take that into the lunchroom and, and probably still keep debating it <laughs> passionately, but be friends when the discussion was over and, and, and worship together at the chapel service and be um, united in our community. And again, everything that we face as believers, I hope you see, you, you can't but read the scriptures and see the importance that community is placed by the different writers of scripture. I mean, we have so many commands of scripture to do life together and be unified in our community. We're just going to look at a couple. Look at 1 Corinthians 1. Verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. I said that, I mean, that's how he, he, he greets the Corinthian church, his normal greetings, first nine verses, and then he immediately starts out by giving them this command. Look at 2 Corinthians 13. So he starts 1 Corinthians with that. Now he's going to wrap up 2 Corinthians with this. Verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. So notice the two one another's. Just in one verse, there's a one another. Can you do a one another command by yourself? No. And if you want to do a little word study, type into your concordance at home, you know, in quotes, one another. And you can see all the one another quotes. All the verses that, that command us to do something to one another. And a lot of times those one another's, it's reciprocal. It's not always, but the vast majority of the time it's a reciprocal. So you're doing it to them, they're doing it back to you. One another. Here we get two of them. Comfort one another, agree with one another. And then he says live in peace. Look at Acts chapter 4. Verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. So notice, they believed were, they were of one heart 
and so friends this is like the very beginning of the early church these are immature believers learning to walk with jesus but notice how they're characterized one heart and soul so if we think that we're mature believers then this most definitely should characterize us if it can characterize immature believers Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Look at that. There's a one another. Bearing with one another. And that's what we have to do sometimes with unity, right? I mean, there is bearing. You know, you're, you're bearing with me and, and some of my shortcomings, and I'm, I'm bearing with you and some of your shortcomings. Bearing with one another in love. Then notice what he says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. All right, not just maintaining the unity, eager. Eager. Think about that. He doesn't just say, bearing with one another in love, maintaining the unity. No, eager. We are eager to maintain unity. It's an important thing. We strive to do it. We want to make sure it happens. And then he goes on. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And every time you're hearing that one, I mean, what's the idea that you're getting? Unity, right? There's one, there's one, there's one, there's one. One body, one. So there's unity. One more verse, Philippians chapter 2. Verse 1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in, in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. You want to know why we see this commanded over and over again in Scripture? Because it, it takes work to do, and it doesn't just happen naturally. It doesn't just naturally occur. If anything, really the opposite. We're, we're prone to be selfish, we're prone to do our own thing. We're prone to put ourselves first. We're commanded in the areas where we're weak and need to be reminded of to do these things. So, unity in community. But here, I want to I be clear on something. We're, I mean, the, the, the title of our life group book is Sound Doctrine. Okay? So sometimes people hear unity 
and then they think, okay, well, we gotta, we gotta compromise on this thing, or we gotta, we gotta compromise on that thing, or we gotta compromise on this thing, or we gotta water that thing. That's not what I'm saying at all, okay? Uh, we want sound doctrine, and, and we will speak truth. So think of the Thessalonian church. I mean, it's a fledgling church. They're young in the faith, just months old, maybe even weeks as we looked at. But Paul, I mean, he's not going to turn back on them. He's not going to turn a blind eye towards their sin. I mean, 1 Thessalonians 4, that section that we read, I mean, he's hammering on them regarding sexual immorality. I mean, he's not holding back. But they're immature in the faith. But they needed to hear it. Why? Because they needed sound doctrine. So you have to speak the truth. But here's the thing that Paul excels in, and we need to too. Truth and compassion. Okay, you got to have the truth, but you got to have compassion with it. And a lot of times, some people, you know, there's some, some people on the internet, believers, even conservative believers, I mean, they're good at delivering the truth, but there's not much compassion. You've got, you got to have both. I mean, you can say a hard word, but you've got to love the person when you're saying that hard word. And, and that can be lacking for many of us. We need the truth and compassion. We need to have convictions to stand firm, but then have compassion for those people. So Paul, he'll be gracious, encouraging, uplifting, but he's also going to be straightforward, truthful, and bold. We need the same as well. So, I mean, being uni unified and walking and having unity in community doesn't mean I'll, I'll overlook that or, or he struggles there, but, you know, that's going to cause issues. No. I actually think part of unity is addressing those things in love. Part of unity is working with people that are on a different plane than you. I mean, how can you do life together? Friends, you, most of us, maybe all of us, you know, we got challenges in our own, our own families. But you still get together on Thanksgiving and Christmas, right? You, you do that, you might not want to. But you do that, and you put up with them, some of those fringe cousins or uncles. But if we're going to do life together, I mean, it's going to be messy. I don't know about your household. I'm sure you got the perfect family, and, and it's all amazing and great, right? <clears throat> but our families, our personal families, just our nuclear family, I mean, that's, stuff happens, right? There's conflicts, there's fights, there's disagreements, even between spouses, believe it or not. But you work through that. You work through that. And you come to a place where you're in unity. But, but that's the same. If you're going to do life, it's going to be messy. If you're going to do life with a community of believers, it's going to be messy. That's just the truth. Why? Because you have a messy life, I have a messy life, life is messy, okay? Also, just to be clear, you have, a, a, you have sin in your life, and I have sin in my life, okay? That's going to cause disruption. So what I'm not saying is, is we water those things down. There's a reason we're going through sound doctrine, because I want to make sure we have it, and we address the truth, and we stand on the truth. Doctrine actually divides, and I don't have a problem with that. It should divide. Okay, if we don't want doctrine to divide, then, then we need to be willing to accept Hindus into membership here and, and Buddhists into membership. No, doctrine divides. 
That's what it does. It's going to divide. Why does doctrine divide? Here's the, here's the reason. Because truth divides. Truth divides. I mean, doctrine, that just comes from, from the word doka-o, the Latin, same for the Greek, but <clears throat> um, teach. Doctrine just means teaching, right? And, and specifically, when you think of doctrine, you're thinking, you know, truthful teachings, teachings of truth, teachings of the Word of God. Well, truth divides. I don't know about you, but, you know, I want leaders who are going to stand for the truth. You want leaders who are going to stand for the truth? But here's my question. I mean, do we really? Do we really want leaders who will stand on their convictions and take a stand? Because here's the thing. For years, conservative church leaders and pastors, you can read their books, watch their videos, see their articles online, well-known ones. I mean, they've decried how other leaders and pastors won't take a stand. You know, they're too wishy-washy. They aren't firm in their belief. Where's the backbone in conservative Christianity? They're like reeds that can be easily bent by the wind. Those are the complaints. But then, you know what? One pastor takes a stand. An unpopular stand. And he's criticized by those same conservative church leaders and pastors for, for taking a stand. And they start to, to, to break down. Oh, well, she, should he take a stand? I'm talking about John MacArthur and his stand in California in Los Angeles to have church service when it is literally against the law. And he takes this stand. You don't have to agree with it. <clears throat> I agree with him. But you don't have to agree with it. But I mean, he's taking a hard stand. That, that's the easy path was not the path John took. All right? He didn't do it to be popular. He didn't do it to run up his book numbers. But all these other conservative church leaders and pastors and bloggers and authors, they're criticizing him for taking a stand. I, I, I think that's wrong. And they're breaking down on all these things and look, oh, should he have done it or should he have not? And was this the time to take the stand? Friends, he took a stand and he called other people to join him. Is that not what you want a Christian pastor to do? To take a stand and then say, join me in the stand. Join me. I'm standing for what I think is truth. And people you know, say, oh, I, I can see both sides. Well, I mean, well, that's good. I can see both sides, too. And you should always try to seek and understand both sides on many issues. It can be very helpful when you dialogue with people. But at some point, you have to make a decision. And if you don't make a decision, you've made a decision. Indecision is a decision. So you have to take a stand for what you believe. So you don't have to agree with, with MacArthur. He took a stand. It was a bold one. I commend him for it. Look, I mean, liquor stores are open in California. Liquor stores. Like, just stores, that, the only thing they sell is liquor. I mean, it just kind of blows my mind. It obviously shows we have a major problem in America when you can just run an entire business solely selling alcohol. Liquor stores are open. Casinos are open. And those liquor stores, you know, they don't have to sell their liquor from the parking lot. And those casinos, they didn't drag their, their slot machines into the parking garage. No, you can go into those liquor stores. You can go into those casinos. You know, I went to the official California COVID-19 website. And you can type in any county in California to see what's open. 
You can also type in the type of business or activity to see like the particular rules regarding that particular business. In Los An so I typed in Los Angeles, that's where his church is at. There, there's tons of categories of businesses that are open on the inside in some capacity. I mean, I mean, you got, I started to make a list and I had like 15 and I was still in C, all right? So then I went to the business types and I was like, oh, I want to see what the rules are for churches. I, you know, I typed in churches. There's no hits. There's no category. I mean, that had me scratching my head. So if you, even if you wanted to try to follow whatever the guidelines are for a particular county, they don't even have churches listed. Maybe you're a believer, you've been out of church for a while, you're like, man, this COVID-19 thing, I need to get back in church. This is my county, I need to figure out what the rules are. Oh, well, you wouldn't know. Or an unbeliever experiencing depression or despair because of everything going on, they want to go to church. They don't know anything about church. Well, they wouldn't either based on this website. You know, and I understand some say, oh, well, you know, MacArthur's church can meet outside. You know, no one's saying they can't, they can't do that. Friends, a week ago today, one week ago, in Los Angeles, they set the highest recorded temperature in their county ever. 121 degrees. You guys want to be outside right now having church? How many of you are going to show up? 121 degrees in the blistering sun. You're 75 years old. Okay, that, that's going to kill you. So <clears throat> it, it seems a little, a little placatish to, oh, you know, you can meet outside. We, we, we won't object to that in 121 degree weather. We'll even let you use the hospitals once you have a heat stroke. <clears throat> I mean, meeting outside is not very practical on a weekly basis throughout the year for much of the country. I mean, that's the truth. And here's the thing, friends, we've got to realize about John MacArthur. You realize how old he is? Like, everyone knows he's old, okay? Is <laughs> that... <laughs> Y'all have heard his name before and grow, grew up hearing it. He's 81 years old. Like, he's 81 years old. He's not some, like, you know, 35-year-old punk wannabe in the limelight pastor trying to make a name for himself. I mean, he made a name for himself a long time ago. Made a name for himself when making a name for yourself wasn't even a thing. That's how old he is. And, you know, he's got, he's got 10 years on all of you, 20 years on most of you, and, and 40 years on over half of you. 81 years old. He's still, he's still rocking and rolling. You know, uh, I mean, this, this guy has done his time. And, and this guy's time is almost done. <laughs> I mean, but he's serving the Lord. And he is doing what he feels God calls him to do. So a couple concluding thoughts. One, I want to go back to Acts 16 and just make a couple observations. So turn back there. So in verse 6 and 7, 
they, they are told in verse 6, the Holy Spirit it says, no, don't, don't go to Asia. And then verse 7, uh, don't go to Bithynia. And it's easy for us to overlook a couple of things here that I think are important. One, this is the Apostle Paul. And think of the, one, think of the humility to not try to have his own way. But two, think of how much he was in communion with the Lord to hear clearly from him. You know, he's getting denied by the Spirit from going somewhere. But then let's, let's apply that to our lives a little bit. We need to remember God sets our paths and directs our ways. Even Paul was subject to the Spirit's leading. And sometimes we try to do something, and God is like to us, just like he was to Paul on the road to Damascus, you know, why are you kicking against the goads? Like, why are you trying to do what I don't want you doing? And, you know, God had a sovereign plan. He had a sovereign plan back then. He has a sovereign plan now. He wanted Paul to be a part of it. And he's like, Paul, I, I need you over here. I need you over here serving. We don't get any insight into what Paul's thoughts were. What we do see is he obeyed. God told him to go. He went. I also want you to notice what happens in verse 9. So the doors are shut twice. He gets a vision in verse 9. Then verse 10. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia. Immediately. You should underline that word. They received direction. They got their mission. And they set off. They did it. They went. This puts them on a course to end up in Thessalonica. And here's the thing. When the Lord tells us to do something, we act, but we don't just act. We act immediately. We hear the command, and we do it. I also want you to notice the very next word. Immediately, we. That's the first time, almost, <clears throat> actually more than halfway through Acts, the first time Luke uses the word we. So it switches from the third person. They did this, they did this. Even in verse 6, they went there. <clears throat> they went through the region. Verse 7, they came up to Mysia. And then, verse 10, it switches from the third person to the first person, we. Why? Because Luke joins them. Luke joins them. I mean, that's, that's the easy, simple, straightforward conclusion to come to. That's why his first missionary journey that Luke wasn't a part of, we don't have as much information. Why? Because... Now Luke joins the trip, and he's the one that's writing Acts, and he's got all that info and the details. So he can go into great detail. Oh, man, this is what happened in Thessalonica, and this is what happened with the Bereans, and this is what happened in Philippi. I mean, he was there, first-hand witness. That's why the first missionary journey, we don't get as much info. So he picks up and joins them. We don't know how, but here's the thing. Because Paul was obedient, wanted to go here, wanted to go here, the Lord's like, no. It's not until after those two knows that somehow their path crosses with Luke. And Luke joins the journey. 
<clears throat> so somewhere, it says passing by, they went down to Troas. That, I mean, it, it would make sense. We don't know for sure, but it would make sense that that's pr probably where they, they met him, introduced to him. He joins them. When, when, Paul, when God gives a thumbs up to someone, Paul is not adverse to having them join the journey. He meets Timothy, as we saw a couple weeks ago, in Acts 16. And, 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 and just a couple months later, he's sending them back to check on the church in Thessalonica. So Paul was not adverse to using people when he saw God clearly was at work. He clearly was in Luke's life. But think about that for a moment. I mean, what if they wouldn't have listened to the Spirit and went their own way? And I believe God's sovereign, and we have his word exactly as he wants it. But if, if they would have disobeyed, they never would have ended up in Philippi, never would have ended up in Thessalonica, never would have ended up in Corinth. They never would have had their path crossed with Luke. <clears throat> and so think about all the books affected. Philippians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Luke, and Acts. I think we underestimate <clears throat> the impact that kind of having our own way and being selfish can really impact the kingdom. You know, what's the big deal about me getting sidetracked? What does it really affect? I mean, it affects a lot. Because, because it affects the kingdom of God. And that's kind of a big deal. The kingdom of God. So it affects the kingdom. So it should be an admonishment to us to make sure that if we're not where we need to be with the Lord, friends, like it affects the kingdom. And a lot of times we are so individualistic and so selfish in our own thinking, we just think our waywardness affects us. Or maybe it affects a couple people. No, it affects the kingdom of God. It affects the kingdom of God. And if that doesn't wake us up, it should. Like our decisions, and it should be an encouragement, our decisions have an impact on the kingdom. God wants to use each one of us to impact the kingdom. If he didn't want you here, you wouldn't be here. Like on this earth, if he didn't want you here, you're here. He wants you to make a difference. I mean, Jesus said, you know, we can use all sorts of things. The rocks can cry out, right? But he's, he's made us the ambassadors, not the rocks, not the plants, not the animals. We are the ambassadors. We are the sent ones. We are the ones that are supposed to go. We are the ones that are supposed to be the missionaries. We are the ones that are supposed to be walking it out and speaking it out and preaching and teaching and being faithful to the gospel. We are supposed to be the ones that have the sound doctrine. We are supposed to be the difference makers. We are supposed to be the ones that stand firm for truth, regardless of the cost. And the cost of discipleship, friends, it's a costly path. It, seem, it, it is becoming more costly with every passing day in America. It's, it's way more costly in China. Way more costly. But we're, 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 we're getting there quicker than many of us think. I want us to notice, lastly, the importance Paul places on the local church. Because that plays into the idea of unity in community. 
you know, Paul, Paul's a busy guy. He's got places to go, people to see, things to do. But he places importance on the local church. It literally is his pride and joy. Look at First Thessalonians. Chapter 2. Look what he says, very last verse of chapter 20. For you, what did I say? Chapter 20, yeah, man, this is, wow. Chapter 2, verse 20. For you are our glory and joy. I mean, he's proud of them. He's excited. Ain't nothing wrong with that. People need to be encouraged. People need to hear that. The Thessalonians needed to hear that. But it shows what he thinks of that little fledgling church. And we make time for things that are important to us, right? I mean, this includes friends. This includes ministry. This includes outreach. Well, guess what? He had three missionary journeys to plant and strengthen churches and many letters to strengthen and encourage and instruct and warn those churches. We can see what was important to Paul. The kingdom advancing. That was important to him. And I, and I believe, I mean, is that important to you all? The kingdom advancing? That commission for the kingdom to advance has been given to the church. When you talk about the different spheres, there's the family sphere, the church sphere, the civil or you might call federal, some people, sphere, the federal government. That's given to the church sphere. Take the gospel and go forth with it. Instruct the nations. Teach them to obey. That's given to the church. The Great Commission. To the church. So, if we want the kingdom to advance... God says it happens through the context of the church. And I believe that that means that within the context of local churches, the kingdom is set to advance the most. Can you be your own little self floating at home doing your own thing and and make a difference? Sure. But it's not going to be as big a difference as it could be. Could you go off and and live in the woods and have some great thriving ministry? Well, probably not, because people aren't going to know how to get there. Okay, Good luck. So you can try to do your own little thing. It's really not how God set up his economy. It It was within the church that the message goes forth. Within the church that the message comes to The message comes to the Thessalonian church. The message comes to the Corinthian church. Okay, so think about this. The church receives the word and then takes the word and sends it out. The word's given to the church, then the church takes it and goes out with it. The kingdom advances within the context of the church. 
And friends, we need to come to a place, if we're not there, we need to come to a place where we see our brothers and sisters in Christ, the people behind you, in front of you, next to you, as essential, essential for your growth and your family's growth in Christ. Not optional, but essential. Listen, they need you, and you need them. All right, we need each other. We are, we are stronger, not physically, but we are stronger spiritually together. We can accomplish more for the kingdom together. We can take the gospel further. They need you. You need them. We, we need each other. So this t- next 12 months, let's be intentional to have unity in community. Let's seek to have that. Let's strive. Let's be eager for it. Let's pray. Father, you've taken us through these last six, seven months, things that we didn't even know about or think about at the beginning of 2020, but you've brought us through. There's been heartache, challenges, trials, God. You have been faithful through it all. Lord, we want to be a church that is busy about your kingdom. Lord, we want to be a church that has true biblical unity. Lord, give us a love for one another that only rivals our love for you. Help us to give grace to one another. Let us be a place, Lord, where people of all varieties can be accepted. Lord, use us to advance your kingdom. Use this church to advance your kingdom. Let us be willing vessels, Father, to be used by you for your glory.